0: Simon Bolivar could have taken it easy and lorded it over the vast lands his parents left him. He could have joined the High Society of Enlightenment Europe and come back to Venezuela speaking Latin and Greek. He could have married, settled down, and never worried about money. Instead, he decided to saddle up and forge an empire. Simon Bolivar would take his army on an incredible journey cross the snow-covered Alps, on horseback, and conquer almost half of the continent of South America. There would be victory, and there would be tragedy. Blind History, Season 4, and an episode on Simon Bolivar, whose real name was Simon José Antonio de la Santísima Trinidad Bolivar y Palacios Ponte Andrade y Blanco. I kid you not, that's the full name. He was born in 1783, and we're going to tell you all about his life. I'm joined, as ever, by my co-host and fellow history nerd, Anthony Medera, the MD of Taylor Blinds and Shutters. That
1: was a mouthful, (laughs) Gareth.
0: Imagine having to say that every time he walked into the room and you have to introduce him. Also, if you get married, the poor priest has to... (laughs) 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 Well, he lived at such an interesting time, you know. That was a time of such amazing people. There was so much going on. If you'd been alive at the time that uh, Bolivar was alive, you might have met George Washington, Louis the Sixteenth, uh, George the Thomas Jefferson, Napoleon, yeah. and the list goes on. It was really the most extraordinary time to be alive. The end of the seventeen hundreds and the beginning of the eighteen hundreds. This guy was born into a great life, and I don't know why he didn't just take up his very comfortable life and live happily as a Venezuelan rich man with lots of lands and lots of servants and a lot of privilege. But uh, he was born to wealthy parents. He was a happy dude. And for a long time, things were good. And then both of his parents in quick succession died. And maybe that's what set him off on a life of, of very different adventures.
1: Yeah. So his parents owned farms, so they owned a lot of land and they owned gold mines and copper mines. They weren't just rich, they were filthy rich. It was very sad. I think his dad died when he was three and his mom died when he was nine. So I think that obviously had to have um, had a traumatic effect on him. But he was—he had so much energy. This guy was destined for
0: greatness. Well, he was very well educated. At a young age, he was sent to Spain and to France. And while in Europe, he learnt all about the Enlightenment, which was all the rage at that time. And obviously, he had watched very carefully what was going on in European politics at the time, saw the rise of Napoleon, and thought very much of his homeland, Venezuela, and precisely how he could be factored into a much bigger story than the story of just being a wealthy landowner who could join the elite of that country and kind of disappear into history. So I suppose his real career started when he went back to Venezuela after being in Europe for some time. But there's there's an interesting story about how on the day of Napoleon's coronation, he'd been a big fan of Napoleon for a long time, but had watched how Napoleon had degenerated into a tyrant and had become just an ordinary old despot. And on the day of Napoleon's coronation, he actually closed the windows of his hotel room in Paris and refused to partake in the celebrations. And he vowed he would never, if he ended up leading anybody, ruling anything, taking over or liberating anyone, that he would never end up like Napoleon.
1: Yeah, that was a clear message for him going forward. And actually, you can see clearly in the way he he led, he definitely didn't replicate what Napoleon did. But at the time, he was married at a very young age to Maria Teresa Rodriguez. And he went back to Venezuela and she came with him. And she died quite quickly afterwards of yellow fever. Yeah. And that he was actually devastated and that really, really affected him. And he went back to Europe and he, he sank into like extravagant debauchery, had massive amounts of affairs. And people just thought, no, you know, who is this guy? He's not really going to amount to much. But the, how wrong was everybody?
0: Well, during that same trip, he, he must have had some kind of aha moment because he ended up in Rome and up on the Aventine Hill, he made another vow, this time that he would dedicate his life to freeing the people of South America and to establishing independence for them from Spain and really that was the beginning it was a vow that he managed to live up to just like his previous one uh, to a lesser degree though because he did eventually end up becoming quite tyrannical but he went off for the second time and there were a number of really disastrous attempts to liberate venezuela i mean the spanish were quite well entrenched and he fought from the western side of Venezuela and made some reasonable incursions. Of course, his first landing there was a disaster. And there was a guy who came before him who we might want to mention called Miranda. And Miranda had been even more of a disaster. He was sort of like the precursor to Bolivar and his success as a liberator. But uh, Miranda ended up being soundly beaten when he tried to start a revolution. And I think Bolivar probably learned a few lessons from him. When he came back to South
1: America, there was just revolution brewing everywhere. And he was asked, let's bring back Miranda, who was part of the French Revolution. Let's bring him back to South America. And he will, look, he's going to aid us a lot. And in the end, they appointed him the president of the First Republic of Venezuela. But what happened, you're 100% correct, because the Spanish didn't want to let this go. And they kept fighting. And then he, in the end, he capitulated.
0: And that made, obviously, Bolivar very angry. And it has to be said, what also made Bolivar angry was that this Miranda disappeared off to a ship with all of the treasury in his possession. He was going to loot the country and disappear. So I think Bolivar felt a little bit like he'd been betrayed. 100% betrayed.
1: And so he basically gave Miranda to the Spanish. <laughs> yeah, And uh, so
0: Miranda died in prison. Now, the interesting thing that happened was that Bolivar fought a hundred battles, 79 of those they say were important ones. He rode on horseback during these campaigns for about 70,000 kilometers, which, you know how we regale Hannibal, the great Carthaginian, with how much travel he did to conquer Rome at the time. He probably traveled a tenth of the distance that Bolivar did during his campaigns. And the thing that he did that I suppose was considered the most uh, extraordinary feat of all was that he and his army, a small army managed to, because he decided, look, we're not going to go and take over Caracas. The, the Spanish are too entrenched there. So what we'll do is we'll, we'll climb the Andes. We'll go through and you know, South America is a tough place to move an army through. You've got forests, you've got. Non-stop rain, you've got swamps, you've got mountains, you've got waterfalls. It's extraordinarily difficult to traverse that terrain. And he took this army over the Andes. They lost 2,000 men, obviously. But his goal was to defeat the Spanish in the second capital, which was Bogota, um, the future capital of Colombia at the time. And he caught them completely off guard. No one thought anyone would be crazy enough to do that. And he did. He crossed the Andes. It's a much bigger feat to cross the Andes than to cross the Alps.
1: Correct. And once again as well, everybody, all these men had passion. And, and they, you know, he basically made a famous statement that you liberate or die. So everybody was in. They were in. Then nobody was going to run away. And and that took the Spanish by surprise. They just weren't up for the battles.
0: Yeah, he's viewed as a national icon in much of modern South America because what he managed to do after that was to establish – A kingdom, really, an empire called Gran Colombia, which essentially was most of Peru, modern-day Bolivia, Ecuador, Panama even, and parts of Venezuela. So really, about a half of South America as we know it today. And the size of Europe, basically. Yeah, it's it's, it's no small feat. So this guy really did from the point of view of of so many of the great conquerors of human history, he deserves to be put in those books, you know? And he was also
1: a born showman. Obviously, he had read a lot about the Romans because um, whenever he liberated cities, he would have these Roman-style triumphs uh, with processions and be greeted by beautiful young girls and laurels of victory.
0: Yeah, And
1: he loved dancing. Yeah, I mean, he said that's when he thought the best.
0: That's when he... <laughs> He came up with his inspiration when he was dancing. So uh, this guy also was was a great conqueror and a, uh, by no means a, a crappy soldier, but he was not the best at administering an empire. And once he had been made president of Gran Colombia, things started to go horribly wrong. He was sort of despotic and tyrannical. He kind of made the rules. The minute anyone proposed anything that he didn't like, he made sure that it was taken out of the constitution he was a very complicated man and didn't run a very good central administration i don't think that
1: was his strength i think uh, his big strength was liberating and it was found wanting in the administration side but he really he was looking towards a united states of of
0: south america yeah that's what was his dream well it's it started to fall apart pretty quickly Peru wanted to separate out from the Union. Colombia became a separate state. Venezuela kind of turned their back on him and said that if he ever comes back into Venezuela, he will be killed immediately. They all had started to gain their independence separate from him. And he didn't like this. He felt like he'd failed horribly. And, uh, you know, for most of that time, he was kind of on the run.
1: And he did also suffer from depression. He used to get very down on himself if he lost a battle, or specifically this time, where everything he worked for was just falling apart around him?
0: Well, there's a famous portrait in charcoal that was sketched by uh, José María Espinosa in 1830, while he was still alive. And he was only 47, but he looks like a man in his 70s. So clearly, life had taken its toll on him by then. And he found his way after an exhausting trip by horse. He found his way to the coast, He was trying to set sail from Cartagena, and he um, was rescued, essentially, by a fan of his, who was someone who knew about his reputation from long before, and he died in this man's house. Um, He had tuberculosis, so he was not in great condition by the time that they'd found him, and he really just spent his last days in bed, coughing, in great sickness, and not particularly pleased with his life, the way it had turned out. You know, a life that really went from ups to downs to ups to downs. It, it was full of adventure. If you were the sort of person who liked the idea of many highlights in your life, this was the life to lead. But by the end of it, a bit of a sad state of affairs.
1: But I think because what he wanted to do, he wanted to actually go across to, to Europe and try and recover. But then one of his greatest uh, disciples and also very, very close friend, and also a person that had fought many battles and, and most of the battles that, that he was on the winning side of this, this gentleman by the name of Sukra Marshal Sukra. He came down to say goodbye to Bolivar and he was assassinated. That's right. And he just, he was inconsolable and he just decided not to go across to Europe. And that's where correctly you said that he, somebody just in brackets rescued him and just put him up while he slowly died.
0: Well, it's also sad that he had no children. Um, he was probably infertile because he contracted measles and mumps as a child. And that must have also contributed to his depression because any great man like that would have wanted to have had an heir to deliver all of this success to. And obviously, you know, one of one of the sadnesses of his life is that he wasn't able to have children. His only living relatives are the descendants of his brothers and sisters. But what was named after him was just incredible. So, I mean, he's the number one man, I think, in
1: South America as a historical statesman. Like Bolivia, obviously, clearly very easy. And then also the Bolivian Republic of Venezuela. That's the full name of Venezuela. Um, he's also named after him.
0: Yeah, and his mantle is often claimed by Hispanic American politicians all across the political spectrum. He's left a militarist legacy in Venezuela. He didn't like factions, and he didn't like the left or the right. He was much more of a military man and much more interested in conquering and liberating, as you've already pointed out, than he was in governing. But um, there, there are plenty of people who've claimed to be his successors. You know, Hugo Chavez claims to be the heir to Simon Bolivar, as did Marcos Perez Jimenez in his military dictatorship. So there are lots of people all over South America who continue to honor his legacy. But really, a bit of a sad state of affairs by the end of it, because South America ever since has been plagued by, you know, guerrillas, dictatorships, military juntas, uh, people like Juan Perón, Augusto Pinochet, who ended up being famous for throwing communists out of helicopters. These are all people who've claimed some aspect of Bolivar's legacy. and And it's certainly an interesting one. I didn't know a damn thing about Simon Bolivar before we started this episode. And just reading about him has made me obsessed. I mean, I'm now kind of looking at everything to do with him. Interesting dude, right?
1: Yeah, and Gareth, you know that the Spanish were imperialists and they were treating all the people in South America slaves, etc, etc, and just using everything for the benefit of the Spanish homeland. And he was so instrumental in just getting that independence in South America away from them. But having said that, you know, there was just centuries of, of Spanish incompetence that were also part of it and also cruelty. And then at the time when he was around, and I think we've spoken a little bit about it before in Napoleon's time, I mean, Carlos Fourth and the Nymphomaniacal Mary and his wife were absolutely clueless. And that just really spurred everything on to help
0: with the revolution. And it's been, a, I actually loved my research on Simon. What an interesting dude. He was also a, um, he was a Freemason, which is interesting too. And uh, and they continue to you know his face his his image his the statues all over South America to his legacy to his memory, um it's an extraordinary life that he led, uh, a difficult life but a really really interesting one. And you think his whole story could have ended with him just being some landowner in South America who lived well and died a happy man, healthy, full of food, full of love, full of life. But uh, it wasn't to be that way. He had more in store. Blind History is brought to you by Taylor Blinds and Shutters. All the episodes are available on the cliffcentral.com website and app, as well as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. He actually challenged a number of other people in his army to feats of strength, like riding. One of his generals ended up calling him Iron Arse. (laughs) <laughs> did you did you know that? I didn't know that. Yeah, he called him Iron Ass because the guy could just sit in the saddle and just ride for miles. The horse would tire before he would.
1: Yeah, he just you can just see just massive
0: <laughs> massive energy.